Here's your one, part two, healing the paralytic. If you have your Bibles with you, I invite you to stand with me as we go to Luke chapter 5, verses 17 through 26. Luke chapter 5, verses 17 through 26. I invite you to stand with me if you're able. And it came about one day that he was teaching, and there were some Pharisees and teachers of the law sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem, and the power of the Lord was present for him to perform healing. And behold, some of the men were carrying on a bed a man, a man who was paralyzed, and they were trying to bring him in and set him down in front of him. And not finding any way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up to the roof and let him down through the, through the tiles with his stretcher, right in the center in front of Jesus. And seeing their faith, he said, Friend, your sins are forgiven you. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to reason, saying, Who is this man who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? But Jesus, aware of their reasonings, answered and said to them, Why are you, re why are you reasoning in your hearts? Which is easier to say, Your sins have been forgiven you, or to say, Rise and walk? But in order that you may know the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, take up your stretcher and go home. And at once he rose up before them and took, took up what he had been lying on and went home glorifying God. And they were all seized with astonishment and began glorifying God. And they were filled with fear, saying, We have seen remarkable things today. May God add blessing and read him his word. You may be seated. We love the word missions. In fact, I preached on it a, a few months ago of what missions is one of the primary things that sets Southern Baptists apart from other denominations and even sets Southern Baptists apart from, from other Baptist denominations. You know, we as Southern Baptists, you know, just finished the, the Lottie Moon Christmas offering. You know, we, we love it because, you know, it, it sends missionaries around the world. It's missionaries that we'll be looking at over the next 52 Sundays as they uh, go out into the foreign countries to tell others about Jesus Christ. You know, we'd love to, to stick the check in the envelope and lick it and put it in the plate when it comes around. Some people love, you know, missions so much that they, they participate in the, the week of prayer that, that the Women on Mission always promote every year coming up to it to, to get our hearts right for, for the offering, to get our hearts right and praying for, for the lost. You know, I, I see a few people's faces light up every year when it's shoebox ministry time. You know, people love the thought of, of giving a gift to, to a child that normally wouldn't receive a, a gift at Christmas time. And when they receive the gift, the child and the parents are presented the good news of the gospel to be able to hear it, sometimes for the first time themselves. You know, I know we're still trying to get over Easter, but, you know, excuse me, not still trying to get over Christmas, but Easter is coming up and going to be here before you know it. And the Southern Baptist offering of Annie Armstrong will be coming up, which goes to support missionaries all across North America. And again, we'll write our checks and lick our envelopes and, and stick them in the plate. But it's easy to uh, allow our idea of missions or our thoughts of missions or our concept of mission to be limited to a little white envelope. It's easy to have our idea of missions be limited to, to, to buying some toys and sticking them in a box or, or praying for a missionary. You know, it's so easy to allow our definition of missions to be defined by those things and to forget 
that missions is supposed to be a personal thing. Reaching out is supposed to be at the heart of who we are as, as Christians and it's a heart, heart of who we are as God's children. You know, missions is not just something we give to. Missions is something that we're supposed to do. You know, think of it this way. You know, many, you know, many of you here today, you know, love sports. Now, many of you, you know, may pull for the wrong team, but that's all right, too. I mean, this year I may be pulling for the wrong team, but <laughs> we still love sports. You know, we sit on the sidelines, we get in front of the TV, and we cheer our team on. We cheer them on, we, we pull for them, we root, we holler and all. Cheering on is fun, isn't it? But cheerleading doesn't add a thing in the world to that team. As cheerleaders, we're not contributors. As fans on the sideline, we never, never go down the court or never go down the field. We never help score a single point. We want our team to win, but we never add a single basket or a single point or a single steal to a single game. And sadly, that same mentality, mentality has carried over into Christians' hearts. That same mentality of being a cheerleader has, has passed over into the local church as well. In the context of today, you know, we, we carried the, the idea of missions. You know, we'll, we'll uh, cheer them on. We'll pray for these folks as family we've got listed here. You know, we'll, we hope that they'll witness to people. We'll hope that they'll bring the lost to Jesus Christ, you know. <laughs> Those that are participating in missions, you know, I'll, I'll pat them on the back and, and, and cheer them on as they share Christ. You know, I'll wear a, a, a church t-shirt that, that says I'm firmly behind them. But too many church members, too many Christians just want to be cheerleaders when it comes to the word missions. But ultimately, that's not biblical. Ultimately, you know, missions and outreach is something that each and every one of us as disciples of Christ are supposed to be involved in. That is the calling of each and every one of us as a follower of Christ is to be involved in missions and outreach. You know, participating in, not just having our money and our prayers invested in it, but our lives, our hearts, our words, our actions. Last week we saw the first days of Jesus' public ministry. He was baptized and then headed into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And we, when he came out, was with the verses we looked at last week, he called Peter and Andrew and James and John to come and to be, be fishers of men. He said, come and follow me. Jesus since calling these four men as, as cast demons out. We see there that he's, he's healed multiple individuals, you know, he's been, been uh, worshiping, he's been teaching, he's been preaching, and now Jesus is on his way now to, to head out to call the, the rest of the 12 disciples. And he has an occasion to be able to, to heal a man that is paralyzed. In chapter 5, Jesus was, was teaching and he's beginning to get the, the attention of the, the Pharisees and the teachers in the temple and the rulers in the temple, and they're beginning to, to get curious about who he is. And again, the early, the early days of his ministry here, and they're beginning to wonder about who he is, and they go out to, to find out more about him. But, you know, but it's evident that God's hand is upon Jesus. And the curiosity begins to, to stir in their heart there. You know, the religious leaders came, from, as we see there in our verses, from, from Galilee, from Judea, from Jerusalem. They're coming from, from everywhere to hear who Jesus, what Jesus has to say and to figure out who he is. 
They could feel God's presence in his teaching and that he had healed multiple people. Verse 15 says that the, the news of Jesus was spreading far and wide. You know, Jesus was becoming more and more popular and people wanted to, to hear him. They wanted to, to have a relationship with him. People wanted to, to have their own illnesses cured. They wanted to have their family members cured of, of the sicknesses that they were dealing with there. And the crowds are, are growing faster and faster. In verse 16 there it says that Jesus often had to just slip away to even have prayer time himself. He, the crowds had, had grown so vast at this point that many times he had to just go out the back door to be able to have time to be able to spend alone with the Father. And as we get up to verse number 17, Luke says that it, it came about one day. Jesus is teaching in a home and a group of friends that has a paralyzed friend brings him to Christ. They hear that Jesus has, has been healing. They hear that Jesus has, has been performing miracles. And they say, you know, we have got to get our friend to him. Our friend can't walk. He's, he's bedridden. He can't been, hasn't been able to get up for, for, for years. We have got to get him to Jesus Christ. So they load him up on a cot or a stretcher and start carrying him to, to Jesus. But when they get there, the, the crowd's too, too great. Can't even see the outside of the house for the people that are standing there. They can't get him in to see Jesus. They can't push the way through the door. All the windows are blocked by people that are listening to Jesus. And, and they're sitting there saying, you know, what are we going to do now? We've carried him all of this distance. We, we love our friend. We've been carrying him for miles now. What are we going to do? I imagine if I'm, I'm this man on this cot, my, 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 my heart is sunk into my stomach. Here it is, they've got my hopes up. Here it is, Jesus Christ has healed so many people and they've brought me so far and I've gotten so close but can't get in. They knew, according to chapter 4, that Jesus had healed every kind of sickness. All they had to do was get in to see him. If I'm that man, I'm thinking, finally, there's somebody that can help me. Now we can hear his voice. But there's no way to get him in. And he begins to cry. I'm still a cripple. Still going to be bedridden. And one of his friends, no doubt, is looking around. You know, we, we, we got to do something here. Can't get in through the door. Can't get in through the window. And I imagine as I read this story, it was, it was probably July, just me, me estimating, and he probably looked up and probably saw that the house still had ice, icicle lights on it. You know, some of y'all still got your Christmas decorations up. And as they saw the icicle lights hanging there off the side of the house, they come up with the idea, let's do what Santa Claus does. Let's take him through the roof. So they found a friend's ladder there, and they, they go up on the roof, and they start pulling roofing tiles off there, and tie ropes there to their, to their friend's cot and begin to, to lower him down into the, to the home. Can you imagine if you're the homeowner and you're trying to explain why you are making a claim on your homeowner's insurance about a hole in your roof? Well, sir, did the wind blow the tiles off? No. Did, did, a, did a limb knock a hole in your roof? No. Well, if you'll know the truth is, a group of men tore my roof apart to be able to lower a friend in by rope to see Jesus. Your farmer's insurance commercials say, you know, we, we know a thing or two because we've seen a thing or two. Well, they hadn't seen this. 
Here it is, they, they lower the, this man in through the roof to be able to see Jesus. And verse 20 says there that Jesus saw this man's faith and said that your sins are forgiven. Verse 24 there, Jesus says to get up and walk and take your stretcher home. This man's disability had been tied to the sin that was in his life. And that's, that's an, another subject for another day. But the same thing is true today. You know, all, some, excuse me, some sicknesses are tied to the sin that we've got in our lives. But the scribes and the Pharisees see this and they begin to, to, to murmur there. Jesus begins to, to see what's going on in their hearts there. And the, the scribes and Pharisees sees are saying, you know, who is this? Who, can, who is this that says that, that he can forgive him of his sins? Only God can do that. Who is this man that can, can heal the lame? Only God can do that. Who is this man that, that speaks such blasphemy? And verse 25 says there that once the, the formerly crippled man heard Jesus tell him that he was forgiven, once he heard him say, take up your, your cot and walk on home, the man got up walking, praising God. And verse 26 there says that, that everyone there was, was seized with astonishment. They knew this man. They knew he was a cripple. They knew that he hadn't, hadn't walked for years. Now he's walking, skipping, carrying his cot, praising God. They said, we have seen remarkable things today. And when we read about this miracle, you know, we tend to focus about the, the crippled man in Jesus. We tend to focus on, on what Jesus did there for that man. But as we look at these verses here today, I want us to focus more on that crippled man's friends and Jesus. First thing I want to look at this morning is these men had a mission. These, these men had a mission. Verses number 19 and 20. <coughs> and behold, some men were carrying on a bed a man who was paralyzed, and they were trying to bring him in and set him down in front of him. And not finding any way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof to let him down through the tiles in his stretcher, right in the center in front of Jesus. This group of friends was on a mission. They cared about their friend. They had one simple focus. Today, we're going to get our friend to Jesus. There's nothing going to stand in our way. Today, we're going to get him to Jesus Christ. Our friend has a need, and there's only one person on the face of this earth that can meet that need that he has, and that's Jesus on a mission. A mission is what drives us. You know, our military, when they go out, they always have a mission to accomplish. You know, we have, as churches, we have mission statements. Businesses have mission statements to, to define what they're trying to accomplish, to define everything that they want to do in life. Jesus Christ himself had a mission statement. Over in Luke chapter 19, verse number 10, it says, For the Son of Man has come to seek and save that which is lost. You know, a mission statement keeps us focused on what we're supposed to be doing. A mission statement keeps us focused on, on what the goal is for that day and the goal is for our life. Joshua had a mission statement. Over in Joshua chapter 24, verse number 15, he said, If it is disagreeable in your sight to serve the Lord, choose for yourself today whom you will serve, whether the gods which your father served, which are beyond the river, or the gods of the Amorites whose, in land, whose land you are living. But as far as me and my house... We will serve the Lord. And the friends of this man here that we see in these verses, they had a defined mission. We're going to get our friend to Jesus. We know the need that he has. 
Let's get him there. Let me ask you, what drives you? What things spiritually has God laid upon your heart to be able to accomplish for him? What has God laid upon your heart? What burden has he put there for you to be able to accomplish for him? What dreams do you have to accomplish for the kingdom of God? Or all of your dreams, all of your, your motives tied up in selfish things? When is the last time you stopped to think, what do I need to accomplish for God today? Stop and think. Who's your one? Who do you need to bring to Jesus? Who do you need to make as your mission in life to bring to Christ? A friend, a family member, co-worker. Make it your mission. Be intentional day in and day out to not only pray for that person, but to invite them as well. Second thing I want to look at this morning is these men had eager expectations. These men had eager expectations. Going back to verse number 18. And behold... Some men were carrying a bed. Man, you know the look that you get when you're holding your wife's pocketbook. You know the feeling when you go into Belks or go in the mall and they say, I think I'm going to try on this dress. I think I'm going to try on this pair of pants. Hold my pocketbook for a minute. You know, these days when you're holding it, you've got to be careful that another man's not hitting on you. But that's another subject for another day as well. But it's awkward to stand there holding the pocketbook because eventually it takes so long that you get tired of standing there. So you start to wander around. You can't stand in one place for so long. And you know how awkward that is and I know how that feels and how people are looking at you. But imagine these men here, these friends, as they're walking down the street carrying a paralytic, carrying a, a bed with a crippled man laying on it. Oh, they got some looks that day. And the closer they got to Jesus, the the heavier and the thicker the crowd got, and they were, they were bumping into people with the cot there, and they, were, they kept, kept to the mission because they had an eager expectation of what Jesus could do if we can just get our friend to him. They had the expectation of, of what Jesus would do in their life if they could just get there. The Bible is full of people with eager expectations. Joshua, as he's getting ready to, to lead the people into the promised land, he knew that they were, were hard-headed and stiff-necked, but he expected God to do something in their lives. Or Elijah, when he's standing alone on the mountain opposite of the prophets of Baal, there as he's standing alone and he's, he's challenging them, let's prove who the true God is, whether, whether it's Yahweh our God or whether it's Baal your God. Elijah had an eager expectation that God would do something there that day. What about you? You have an eager expectation that your loved one or your friend can come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. All too often we go through life and we, we give up on people, we forget about people, we say they're too old or the circumstances are too great, but these people here would not give up on their friend. We need to have an eager expectation in our life that God is still in control and that God is still working. And that expectation that if we can just get our friend to Jesus, that God can do something. Third thing we'll look at this morning is these men encountered an obstacle. These men encountered an obstacle. Verse number 19. And not finding any way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down through the tiles with his stretcher, right in the center 
in front of Jesus. Because of the crowd there, there was no man to get this, no way to get this man to Jesus. At this point, as the crowd is too great, as the doors and the windows are blocked, many people would have given up. Well, we, we tried. Well, Joe, we're sorry. We, we, we knew the answer. We knew what we needed to do, but, but you know, we gave it a good try, and, and ultimately that's what counts, isn't it? Let's wave the white flag. Buddy, at least we thought of you, enough of you to try it. There's no way in. Let's just go home. And often we assume that an open door is the only way in. As the missionaries we're looking at uh, this week, you know, they, if they were just dependent on an open door, that, that region that they were uh, witnessing in and preaching and teaching in would be closed, illegal to be a Christian. But often we assume that an open door is the only way in because it's the, the easy way. After all, you know, if, if God wanted this person to be in church, he, he'd make it easy, wouldn't he? No. Think of the Apostle Paul. If he only went through open doors, if he only went through the, through the doors that were easy, we'd be missing half the New Testament. These men saw an obstacle, but they said, we're not going to give up on our friend. He said that the, the obstacles are great and we don't know how we're going to get around it, but they would not give up on their friend until they got him to Jesus. Have you allowed obstacles to stop you from reaching your one? Have you allowed things to come up or circumstances or, or preconceived ideas to come up in your mind to stop you from reaching your one? What would it look like if you made a hole in the roof and brought your friend to Jesus? Would not give up. Would not compromise. Fourth thing I want to look at this morning is this, these men got more than they bargained for. These men got more than they bargained for. Verse number 23 which is easier to say your sins have been forgiven or for you to arise and walk? These men thought that this man's problem was a physical problem. He's got nerve damage. He's got some undeveloped muscles. Maybe he's got joint problems. But the truth is this man's problem is tied to a sin problem. He's got a spiritual issue going on in his life. And Jesus did hear what he, he does for all of us. He shows us the real need that we have in our lives. And these friends that day got more than they bargained for. They wanted their friend healed. And he got healed. But he also got forgiven of his sins. He got a relationship with Jesus. He got more than he bargained for. We're never the same again once we meet Jesus. And that should be what we want for our friend, loved one, co-worker, our one. To introduce them to Jesus and to see Jesus do more in their lives than they ever thought possible. I want to close with a little illustration that, that I ran across. Johnny Hunt, which I've, I've had the privilege of seeing him preach in person a couple of times, but he's former president of Southern Baptist Convention and current pastor of a Woodstock Baptist Church in, in Georgia. But he wrote this. He said, Now it came, a came to pass that a group existed that called themselves fishermen. And lo, there were fish in the waters all around. In fact, the whole area was surrounded by streams and lakes filled with fish, and the fish were hungry. Week after week, month after month, year after year, these that called themselves fish, fishermen met in meetings and talked about their call to fish, the abundance of fish, and how they might go out fishing. 
Year after year, they carefully defined what fishing means, defended fishing as an occupation, and declared that fishing is always the primary task of a fisherman. Continually, they searched for new and better methods of fishing and for new and better definitions of fishing. They created with witty slogans and displayed them on big, beautiful banners. These fishermen built large, beautiful buildings called fishing headquarters. The, the plea was that everyone should be, be fishermen and that every fisherman should fish. Only one thing they didn't do, however, they didn't fish. In addition to meeting regularly, they organized a board to send out fishermen to other places where other, other men may fish. The board hired staff and appointed committees and held meetings to define fishing, to defend fishing and decide what new streams should should be thought about, but the staff and the committee members did not fish. Large and elaborate and expensive training centers were built whose original and primary purpose was to teach fishermen how to fish. Over the years, courses were offered of the needs of fish, the natures of fish, where to fish, the psychological reactions of fish, and how to approach and feed fish. Those that taught and had doctorates in fishology, but, they, but the teachers did not fish. They only taught fishing. Year after year, after tedious training, many graduates were given fishing license and were sent into full-time fishing to some in distant waters, which were filled with many fish. Many who felt the call to be fishermen respond, and they were commissioned and sent to fish. But like the fishermen back home, they never fished. They engaged in all kinds of other occupations. Some felt like their job was to relate to the fish in a good way so that the fish would know the difference between good and bad fishermen. Others felt simply that letting the fish know that they were nice, land-loving neighbors and how they could have that kind of, excuse me, and that their kind was enough. Now, it is true that many fishermen sacrificed and put up with all kinds of difficulties. Some lived near the waters and bore the smell of dead fish every day. They received the ridicule of some who made fun of their fishermen's clubs and the fact that they claimed to be fishermen yet never fished. Imagine how hurt some were one day when a person suggested that those that don't fish are really not fishermen, no matter how much they claim to be. Yet, that, yet it did sound correct. If a person is a fisherman year after year, but he never fishes, more plainly stated, is one really following is he, if he isn't fishing. And it's time to start casting our nets. Who is your one to go after? Who do you need to go fishing for? It's easy as Christians to, to get in that groove or to get in that place in life that, again, we, we talk about missions, we pray about missions, we give, about, we give to missions, we, we focus on missions certain weeks of the year, but to forget that, that missions is supposed to be a personal event. It's supposed to be the definition of who we are. Who's your one? Will you go fishing to them? Will you let them know that God loves them and that he wants a relationship with them?